be met with even in a hundred thousand million kalpas, having it to see and listen to, to remember and accept. I vow to taste the truth of the Tathagata's words. Good evening, everybody, and a special welcome to, uh, to Keith's uh, guest there this evening. Hopefully you guys are maintaining uh, safe distance there, six feet, right? <laughs> nice to have you back, Shenmah. Thank you. It's good to be back. I just uh, drove 1,500 miles in the past three days. <laughs> wow. Wow. And I, I wore a mask. One of the beautiful things about Zen is uh, is uh, its punctuality. Uh, Keith, Keith has got this down so well. As soon as that clock hits eight ten, the chant goes on the screen and we start. And it's that's the way Zen is supposed to be. So thank you. All right. Well, so I think we're ready to. Uh, to move on to chapter four of Ecodharma, which, uh, which I think is a little brighter in spirit. It's, uh, it's still certainly realistic, but, uh, but when I uh, finished reviewing it and preparing some notes for tonight, you know, I, I came uh, away from it uh, feeling a bit more optimistic. And in that spirit, uh, before we turn our attention to David Loy and, and the text, I uh, wanted to uh, refer to a couple of things in uh, this past Sunday's Plain Dealer. Uh, for those of you who read the Sunday Plain Dealer, uh, you're, you've probably already read this. I, I'm sure you read this every week. Uh, there's a section in the Sunday paper that's called Earth Week, Diary of a Changing World. And it's compiled by this guy uh, named Steve Newman, who just gathers news stories uh, about uh, the environment, what's going on in different places. Uh, a lot of it's negative, but actually, uh, Three of the, the stories uh, that were included, three out of seven, so almost half, not quite, but almost half, were in a very positive vein. So I just wanted to share the gist of those with you tonight uh, to lift everybody's spirit, and then we'll dive into to David Lloyd. The first one talks about this uh, project that's called Mini Forests. Uh, that consists of a patchwork of small but dense forests, which is emerging across Europe, thanks to a Japanese botanist who has also planted tiny forests in uh, both Japan and Malaysia. Akira 
Milwaukee uh, projects uh, or his 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 projects use saplings of native varieties adapted to local conditions to cover sites as small as a tennis court and in patches of roadside. So they really are these mini forests. Uh, the method typically uses 30 or more species at a time and is said to grow forests 10 times faster, 30 times denser, and 100 times more biodiverse than those planted in conventional ways. And besides the ability to capture carbon from the atmosphere to combat global warming, the mini forests provide better food and shelter for a diversity of creatures such as insects, snails, and amphibians. So an example of one person who launches this type of a project is having an impact now in uh, both Asia and Europe. Uh, and then there was another really engaging story about uh, it's labeled giant success about a group of aging giant tortoises that uh, that helped save their species from the brink of extinction in the Galapagos Islands. Uh, they were released into the wild after four decades of tireless breeding. So this was a case where human intervention actually uh, played a, a key role as well, along with these uh, uh, heroic uh, tortoises, uh, because the number of tortoises had plummeted to just 15 back in the 1970s. And now there are more than 2,000 living on uh, Espanola Island in the Galapagos. So uh, they can, uh, hopefully they enjoy a well-deserved retirement now. <laughs> and lastly, there's a story in here about uh, uh, the progress being made about uh, uh, using hydrogen as an alternative fuel. And it talks about how a group of six European countries is calling on the EU to increase funding to support hydrogen fuel, which has the potential to power vehicles with little or no carbon footprint in the future. Uh, these six countries uh, that are involved currently are Germany, Austria, France, the Netherlands, Belgium, and Luxembourg. And in a joint statement, they said that the funding must be backed by new legislation linked to the EU's coronavirus recovery fund. So they, they are trying to bring these two uh, pieces together, uh, the pandemic and uh, the environmental crisis. And uh, then it closes by saying the move comes as the California Energy Commission predicted that hydrogen fuel could become as cheap as gasoline within five years, thanks to new technology. So there, there are myriad reasons 
for hope. I mean, all the news is not bleak. And it's important we keep that in mind. Uh, while still obviously uh, maintaining our awareness of the, uh, the stark challenges that we're faced with. So let's uh, go ahead then and dive into chapter four. And Loy, early in the chapter, uh, expresses a point that I think is really important, both for our purposes with this Ecodharma project, but just more generally speaking, when he says Buddhism is not only what the Buddha taught, it's not just a collection of teachings, but what he began. And we keep the tradition alive by keeping it relevant to our situation to see it as a real living tradition that has to change and adapt. I mean, one of its core teachings about reality is impermanence. So it would be uh, a poor way of conveying that truth to do it in a tradition that just comes out with their own absolute truths that are set in stone. Uh, you know, Buddhism is very serious about this truth of impermanence. The world changes, which means our practice needs to change. The teachings need to change. You know, Ecodharma, a teaching like this, would have been unthinkable. Not that long ago. You don't even have to go back as far as Dogen, let alone uh, Shakyamuni Buddha, to reach a time when uh, this wouldn't have made much much sense. But having said that, Dogen clearly uh, had a profound relationship with the natural world. He he spent his life in. So while he didn't have these issues, uh, there's no doubt in my mind that he would have been writing fascicles about the environmental crisis if he were here today. So we, as followers on his path, uh, it falls to us to carry on his tradition updated for today's concerns. And then Loy makes a point that he makes several times, we've discussed this before, that this eco-crisis is as much a spiritual challenge as the technological and an economic one. The spiritual piece to it has to play a role. Otherwise, at, at the best, all we can do is maybe punt the problem a little bit further into the future. But if we're really going to transform our impact on the earth, we need to transform the nature of our relationship with it at a fundamental level beyond the technological and the economic. Then he points out 
that uh, that the root of this can be seen as our constructing our sense of self in such a fashion that it's seen as being separate from the rest of the world, which is essentially a definition of dukkha, of, <coughs> of Buddhist suffering. And then when we started from that point, we engage in the project of trying to secure ourselves by identifying with things outside of us. And once we've identified with those, then we need to grasp onto them. Because that's what we rely on to provide our grounding, our security is not our relationship with all things that's always in place, that's not dependent on particular things, but rather it's based on clinging to particular things. So instead of the openness, the expansiveness that this practice from Zazen and then on to all the other aspects of practice. What they are, are helping us to realize, instead of that approach, we take the, the, the narrowing approach of fixating on particular things and basing our happiness on those particular relationships, whereas our relationship with the entirety doesn't even enter into the picture. So we kind of reverse that process. It's our relationship with the entirety, seeing there's no separation that, that shapes our, uh, our perspective, our activities, our practice, our lives. So he puts it in uh, more contemporary terms uh, that the sense of self that, that our society kind of uh, uh, helps to facilitate needs to be deconstructed. We need to pull it down and then reconstructed in a way that, 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 uh, that actually uh, matches, is in harmony with the world. So one way of looking at this with particular teachings would be that the deconstruction of the self is to dismantle the three poisons and their impact on our life. Greed, hatred, delusion. And these can 
in and of themselves, they can provide so much guidance to our practice, just to be aware of greed. Because it's always coming up for us. And anger. You know, we often talk about uh, uh, tuning into to the media and how that can uh, can generate a lot of anger. So we need to see it arising within ourselves, not just uh, uh, pointing fingers at others who are experiencing it. And ignorance is simply seeing ourselves as separate from other beings. It's creating the other. And to see how we do that. And psychologists have done study after study about how hatred depends on that, to have that sense of the other. And Buddhism has the four divine abidings teachings, the Brahma Viharas, they're tailor-made to, uh, to provide medical relief from the poisons. Loving kindness, sympathetic joy, compassion, equanimity. And standing behind those four, wisdom, prajna. Which is why Buddhism is so relevant today, whatever the issue is. Whether it's the global environmental crisis, racism, or anything else. If we come at those from practicing the four Brahma Viharas and, and unlocking the prajna that we all have, because it runs through all things. And the poisons can't coexist with them. So realizing our groundlessness back to that uh, Trungpa analogy of jumping out of the airplane with no parachute and no ground. That's groundlessness. That's no parachute.
That's being with each thing that arises. The whole issue of needing a ground begins to dissipate, really, when we're practicing, when we're practicing. So realizing our groundlessness, as Lloyd puts it, liberates liberates us from self-centeredness. And through that, it does work to transform the world around us as well. Because our relationship to the world has changed so fundamentally. And it really is fundamental. And then he goes on to talk about parallels between the individual sense of self and humanity's collective sense of self. And when I uh, read that section of his chapter, it, it struck me that to make, we don't, I don't think, make that leap from our own sense of self to a collective sense of self. Uh, rather, there are all these various subsets in between that are kind of like our, our path across this stream. Things that I jotted down some, uh, uh, things such as our nation, the role of, of where we live, and we could shrink that down to our community even. Our religion. Buddhists can get caught up in that as much as any other religious tradition. Obviously, as we're very aware of these days, the role of race in that. The role of gender in that. The role of class. You know, what's your status? And all these things have bearing on that. And status is dependent upon separation. It's how we measure that separation. And we, we want the separation from our vantage point to be in a positive direction. That we can feel kind of superior. And people can go through a lot of constructive uh, madness creating those distances. That, that deep down are, of course, only constructions. I mean, from a scientific standpoint, of course, there's no race. You know, we we uh, have more genetic differential 
within the Caucasian grouping of individuals than exists between Caucasians and Blacks. I mean, race is a fabrication, but it's obviously very real because of what we've made it into. But the positive side of that is, uh, because we've constructed it, we can deconstruct it. And then reconstruct. Because diversity, at least in my humble opinion, is a very beautiful thing. It doesn't mean difference in the context of this sense of superiority, inferiority. It's just difference, the Sandokai difference. It's at the heart of existence. So if we can open ourselves to that and see that as just part of the beautiful richness of reality, save ourselves an awful lot of dukkha and others as well that can bring a be a major healing force in the world and david lloyd talks about our role being to serve the well-being of the whole which will also heal us. So we're back to the practice of the Brahma-Viharas as a way to conceptualize our healing activity in the world. How we practice. and coming to open ourselves to diversity in all its different shapes and forms. And that without it, if we expand our gaze beyond just our propensity to differentiate between others within our species to our propensity to distinguish between ourselves and all other beings. We become seen as, uh, as the special privileged form of existence. If we can go to that even more expansive place and see how without all of that down to the realm of bacteria, there would be no us. There is no separation. We know this scientifically. Again, just like there is no race, Hey, there's no separation between us and other living beings. We need them. 
We need the many forests. We need all forests. We need that entire kingdom of, of plants. Without them, not only would we not be here, the whole family of animals wouldn't be here. Because the early atmosphere of Earth didn't have very much oxygen in it. So for beings that required oxygen to sustain their life, they needed that initial life form to be able to transform elements that were present into oxygen. But then we could come along and enjoy by focusing on our breath doing meditation practice. So when we do that, acknowledge gratitude to the plants of this planet. Our practice depends on them. And has for billions of years. So Loy goes on then to, uh, to talk about notions of progress. And I think this is really an important subject. So I wanted to say a few things about it uh, before I close out my comments tonight, but uh, I suspect we, we may return to it and, and start off uh, next week, uh, looking at this a little further. But it seems to be kind of baked into our notion of maybe this is the ultimate lack project. I don't think Lloyd puts it quite that way, but the sense of progress. And if we didn't have that, we'd, we'd uh, have a tendency to feel a real lack. We can see so much of our life as being uh, a progression. And the whole theory of evolution can be seen as kind of falling into this sense of progress. So back even before I started practicing Buddhism, uh, back in the 70s, back in the heyday of, of punk rock, I have to admit that I, I was much enamored of that uh, group out of Akron called Devo, de-evolution. I, I thought uh, that was that was a radical philosophy I could really plug into and appreciate. 
but it was what it was doing in, in, a, in a very uh, uh, humorous vein. But there, there was some seriousness behind it, was to kind of shake us out of this sense of, of, uh, of you know, the progress that, that this species is, uh, is bringing to the globe. But uh, actually, maybe it's the, the other way around. Maybe it's de-evolution, Debo. We're, we're going backwards. And at the end of uh, all of the chapters in Ecodharma, uh, Loy includes several pages of, uh, of quotes from, from different figures. And at the end of, of chapter four, he has one that I really appreciate a great deal uh, by the uh, eminent biologist E.O. Wilson, who said, uh, it is possible that intelligence in the wrong kind of species, like maybe Homo sapiens, was foreordained to be a fatal combination for the biosphere. Perhaps a law of evolution is that intelligence usually extinguishes itself. <laughs> we can see evidence of that. Now, and that sounds pretty bleak, right? <laughs> so as, as a uh, Buddhist practitioner, I come away from that. It just reinforces for me the importance of prajna, that it's not about intelligence. Again, hearkening back to the Sandokai, between the sharp, dull-witted, between the northern and southern ancestors, there's no distinction. It's not about intelligence or lack thereof. It's about the wisdom. And intelligence, turn loose without wisdom simply becomes more and more powerful and thereby more and more potentially destructive it also has can do wonderful things in a positive vein but without wisdom it can unleash some very frightful things. So beware these notions of progress. And again, it's one of these places like the three poisons to see the role it can play in our own lives. Progress is, I mean, related to being able to, to, to be present with what's here now and not trying to make it progress, just caring for it, not trying to do anything with it, just care for it. If it's in a good state, appreciate it, sympathetic joy, if it's in a hurtful state, be compassionate with it. 
exert healing energy in whatever way it's within your capability under those circumstances to do so. But progress is a mixed bag. And obviously, we've kind of hooked into that and our measurements of it are quantitative. That's kind of key, which is one of the reasons why we're focused on growth. One of the beauties of growth is if you are looking to grow in a certain fashion, it's important that it's quantifiable. And monetary measurements are kind of the gold standard, pardon the pun, <laughs> for, for that. It's all captured. In, can be captured in spreadsheets and tallied projected and if if your game is to measure degrees of separation it's pretty ideal for that and we can attribute it all to progress. Growing GDP. So if the environment is, uh, is suffering because of it, well, as, as many would say, don't worry about that. It'll, we'll, we'll get around to taking care of that, but look at the, positive, the progress, the growth, that's going to make all things possible, right? So I think that's a good place to, to hit the pause button tonight, and we'll come back to more of that next week. So any, any thoughts you might have? Dean, I just, uh, I have a question. You were talking about um, the sense of progress and then you mentioned something about the sense of lack. And then you said something about evolution falls into that sense of progress. So were you saying that, that uh, progress, the sense of progress can be motivated by a sense of lack? And therefore, it's like wisdom that's not anchored, or intelligence that's not anchored in wisdom. Is that where you were? Yeah. Well, the the connection of progress with evolution, it's kind of when when you take evolution in a particular sense as uh, survival of the fittest, it <laughs> seems to to. Uh, lead to, to what people often refer to as progress, because you are uh, creating beings that are more capable 
of thriving in their particular environment. They're better adapted through the process of natural selection. So that in and of itself uh, can be seen as a form of progress, which will then trigger other forms of progress. Uh, so I think that's probably the, the, the most direct linkage between evolution and, and progress. Mm -hmm. It's the way natural selection plays out. So what was your comment about then, um, I was curious about what you meant by the sense of lack intertwining with progress. Well, I think there's, it's kind of, it's, it's uh, the fact that we do are prone to uh, feeling lack because of dukkha, because of separation. It kind of makes us, uh, puts us in a position where we can be hooked then by these notions of progress. They, they really, uh, resonate with us that oh if I can uh, look kind of like uh, uh, somebody who is is trying to to get a promotion at work uh, or any kind of activity that's that's designed around you know getting more. Yeah. You know, it, it's not to denigrate getting a promotion. Uh, it's, you know, it can be seen as just, well, somebody has really applied themselves well to a particular task and, uh, and they're recognized for it. So you can feel good, not about having acquired more, but just that, oh, I'm, I'm having a, an impact there. Um, um, but that's not the way, that's where this notion of progress connected to the lack projects and then connected to uh, the, uh, the uh, quantitative measurement of progress that I closed out with about the, uh, that's the beauty of, of uh, dollars and cents is we can quantify it. How much of a raise did I get? That's how I measure my progress, not, you know, how am I benefiting other people? It's uh, what's what's showing up in my in my checking account every two weeks. And how is that progressing? So I think all of these notions, progress, lack projects uh, are, are very much inter intertwined. And the more we kind of dive into this and we, we get a sense of, of how they're so deeply connected, uh, I think the, the deeper our own personal awareness goes, I know it works this way for me, is to see the ways in which I can get move that way. And because uh, we can't address any of these things without that first initial awareness that it's even going on. But yeah, I think they are very tightly linked together. They kind of feed each other. And that's part of what gives it the strength it has is that it's pretty tightly bound with a lot of uh, deep, deep seated uh, uh, perspectives and views that we have.
that are connected to emotions, fixed views. But that's what Zazen is about, is, <laughs> is uh, being able to, to see and let go. And it's, uh, it doesn't happen overnight. That's why it's a practice that requires patience, takes years, 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 and it's ongoing, continuous practice. It seems to me that part of the basis, or, or I guess it, it certainly reminds me of some of what I talked about in chapter two of Branching Streams, the idea of differentiation and the Buddhist perspective versus the way we normally think of it. Yeah. That from a Buddhist perspective, differentiation gives everything equal and absolute value as opposed to the way we normally do it, which is to give it the relative value that tells us whether we're progressing or not. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the linkages with Sandokai are, are immense. <laughs> I'm only starting to recognize how many linkages there are to Sandokai. <laughs> Well, that's a lifetime practice, too. Now. <laughs> okay. I'll keep at it. <laughs> Good, I hope so. <laughs> so. I'm looking forward to a number of additional talks on, on that general thing. Let this be a lesson to all of you. Careful what you say. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'll be talking about that Sunday morning, the history of Crooked River Zen Center. And one continuous mistake in terms of what I might say. <laughs> Live to regret it. <laughs> or maybe the practice is to learn not to regret it. <laughs> right. Ultimately, you get there. <laughs> <laughs> little bit slowly I'm good On the subject of thinking and intelligence, um, for one thing, it, it brings to mind the, the wisdom of the whole notion that comes out of Buddhism of non-thinking, and um, which of course doesn't mean being stupid or anything like that. But, but also as, um, as a school counselor, I'm, spend a lot of time talking to seniors who are graduating and going on to college. And um, one of the really frustrating things I find is I run into lots and lots of 18 year olds, 17 year olds who are absolute gold. I mean, the gold that they have is just 
you can't put your finger on it. You can't, you can't, you can't, um, you can't measure it. And uh, so a lot, and a lot of these students do not do well on the ACT. They do not do well in the SAT. And what they have needs to be cultivated. They they need they, they need to call they need they, and and I mean I don't mean um, cultivated in a mediocre sense or you know where they can uh, make a living doing you know whatever. Um, but I'm talking about lots of students who have their intuition and their emotional intelligence and their 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 insight and their their ability at is just amazing and yet they do not get the recognition or the financial help they need because colleges are going by these numbers now there are colleges there's a there's somewhat of a movement for co colleges to drop act sat requirements that's very that's still very minimal at this point that's but um it's very striking um, to see, talk about wasted human resources. I mean, it's just, um, uh, you know, and, and most of the students I work with are, you know, from Cleveland, um, urban, uh, you know, low, lower socioeconomic students. And we, we, Cleveland does now have the Say Yes program, which really is very helpful to these students. But um, anyway. But but we really we're really very blind. We're very blind. Were there, I, many years ago, I came up with this, this notion called you know there's racism and there's sexism and there's religionism, but there's also intelligentism, and that is we are literally prejudiced against people who don't have a certain kind of intelligence that is measured by SAT type standardized tests, and and we miss. Um, some amazing humans who, who should be who should go to first-rate institutions and have what they have truly developed because they're truly amazing humans and it and it and we, we, we just it just goes over our head but um, anyway yeah yeah or uh, I mean and it's really a shame that uh, people like that we we feel a need that they should uh be going to an institution uh maybe that's the exact opposite of what they need to do but our society values the the role of the institution uh it's it's the ability uh some people uh will just don't thrive at all in that kind of uh, a tight-knit structure. But if you throw them out and let them uh, uh, swim in, in the deep end, uh, they can actually become pretty masterful. But it's just a different path. We have this sense of, of the path that, uh, that, that one should take and, and at least get as close to that path as possible our ability to just open our perspective to uh, to kind of uh, the pathless path, uh, we'd, uh, we'd be resistant to that, to, to just uh, open that up and have it be that 
that people can uh, kind of like what Zen practices is, is this self-exploration and trust in self, trust faith. Uh, that's part and parcel of the practice. So if we took that and put it into the educational realm, that could, uh, we, I, I mean, my own sense is we just need to build that uh, out as broadly as possible to, to uh, and not, it's kind of like Suzuki put it in Zen Mind Beginner's Mind, not just to cut them loose and let them go off his notion about watching, watching that cow, you know, being with them. So having a counselor, for instance, it's, it's doing check-ins with them from time to time. Even, even post, let's say, high school, even if they're not going on for formal education, but to have that kind of check, checking in. Yeah, it's actually necessary, and we our culture doesn't recognize that. Yeah, I I was just listening. Funny you brought up the word emotions. Um, I was just listening to an episode of uh, Insights at the Edge. Tammy Simon. I don't know if anybody ever listens to that, but um, it's really a series of interesting interviews. And she was recently interviewing a woman that wrote a book. Um, on emotions and how emotions affect uh, every facet of thinking, um, whatever kind of emotion it is that we're pulling off of while we're having the experience or trying to express ourselves. But um, is he basically, without saying it, I think so far she's <laughs> to intelligence, not just emotionally. In emotional intelligence, but because of our emotions, we can have certain levels of intelligence. And as she starts seeing people with anomalies in their life, you can identify which emotion is just totally void from their being, um, all the way down to autistic people, some of which have no emotion. So it's it's an interesting thing to listen to. I never thought about emotions as being tied in with intelligence. Yeah. Yeah, there's a neuroscientist that I followed for many, many, many years, Antonio Damasio. And that's his specialty, is the role of emotions. That, that Western thought has kind of always seen emotions as being uh, something to, uh, to be transcended, that they are the problem. <laughs> they prevent us from being truly human, rational. Whereas the reality is, without emotions, we we can't be rational. We certainly can't be uh, be able to engage our rationality. We can't act. And uh, the first uh, book he he wrote uh, looked at this uh, workman from the 19th century who had a horrific industrial accident where a steel rod you know, went into his head and did, did major brain damage, but he survived and recovered. 
But what the part of his brain that was uh, impacted was the emotional center. He couldn't feel an emotion. And as a result, he'd been a really bright, very capable guy. And all of a sudden, he was, he was disabled, not physically from the injury, but because he couldn't carry on the normal activities of life. Because without emotions, you can't decide to do anything. You couldn't figure out what you're going to have for lunch. I mean, emotions at that level play a role in everything we're going to do. What, what, what pair of pants are you going to put on this morning? You'd be stymied right there. You're done. <laughs> That's the role of emotions. You just never, never be able to pick out clothing, never be able to pick out food. So he really was an invalid. And yeah, and Damasio has spent his career, you know, digging deeper into that, the vital role of emotions. That, you know, they are like every aspect of us to embrace it and to see uh, how it enriches our lives. Without it, without them, we we wouldn't be. They're there for a reason. Yeah, and you have to learn how to own them and process them too. The risk of saying the opposite of what I just said earlier, my first eight years, I taught um, high school math at South High. And one of the things I noticed was most, for the most part, students could not get it, not because they couldn't get it. They absolutely had the intelligence to get it, but it was really at the emotional level that emotionally they were very if a student was really emotionally immature and did not know how to um identify own and process their own feelings and and stuckness in that then they quote couldn't get it and 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 they and you know it wasn't like they're faking it or anything like that but so so the, the role of emotion was clear as, as hell when i first became a teacher it's like wow like I always thought there were some kids who, you know, good at math and some kids are bad at math. But it's not, it's not so much that. It's more of the emotional disposition of the, the, the person um, that really was going, was really obstructing the, the student. So very true. You know, you're saying it's about promotions and, and, and attaching um, monetary reward to recognition and progress. Mm -hmm. and, and so the, that plays into a rather amoral view of progress and promotion. It's, it's um, when we we basically attach a monetary value to and 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 the, and the social movement of our promotion as to whether it's good or bad we become very amoral as to whether <laughs> what we're doing or what we're getting promoted to is actually beneficial to ourselves or others or anything and that's yeah yeah 
amoral that's that's easily pushed into the immoral (laughs) side uh, because all that matters is the progress is more and that's what people are going to see and and uh and allocate status to you over so yeah it's it's it comes back to that sense of value and what do we value i have a little story about um the daughter who um always had was considered learning disabled um going through school and um when she only got into college because there was such a difference between her grades and the SAT scores. The score she got on the SATs was what you get for signing your name. Um, but she had good scores um, in her subject because she she worked herself to the bone and I had tutors for her. But um, Finally, at one point, she was down at Ohio State, and um, she had switched her major to nutrition, and she needed a lot of math classes, and she had a hard time with math. So she was taking basic math and was having a terrible time with it. And one tutor after another told her to switch her majors, and I kept telling her, get another tutor, get another tutor. Finally, she ends up with this girl from Tunisia by the name of Alem. And Alem was getting her um, master's in hydroelectric engineering or something like that. And she took my daughter from basic freshman math at Ohio State up to physics. Hmm. And uh, uh, Colleen brought her home and I said, how did you do this? Because I'd been struggling with her since she was in third grade with this. And she said, the problem with American, um, with education here is everything is rote. And she said, I told her the stories Mm. behind all Mm. these principles and she got it. Mm. So there's that piece to it too. Beautiful. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one other thing I'll throw out there tonight, since we were talking about, you know, measuring more and lack and uh, gross national product, GDP, you know, all that, that there is this thing called the happiness index that you know what I'm saying? That there's there's an attempt to measure something other than the monetary value of a country's output. The well-being of a country through the happiness index is um, another form of measurement that's really like an antidote to the GDP. I mean, I Googled it on my phone while we were talking, and it's like, you know, it's just, it's a really refreshing way of looking at the output of a country and what it what its citizens are experiencing. So, yeah, I have a um, an entry on my website. I work with architects to help them grow their businesses, 
Uh -huh. And the, the title of the article is How Much is Enough? Whether or not, you know, it's possible that, uh, whether or not it's possible to, to put a business plan in place that does not call for an increase in revenue. Oh, wow. <laughs> what would happen if they stayed at the same revenue level, but got better projects or were more profitable or um, enjoyed their work-life balance more? You know, so it's it's an interesting thought that progress means progress and lack can be connected. Yeah. There yeah. can be that sense. So <laughs> anyway, I'm doing my best to bring Buddhism to business. <laughs> well, and that's the important thing. Uh, next uh, week, when we continue on with Chapter 4, he... Uh, Loy brings in uh, the work of Paul Hawken to document oh, right. all these uh, projects of you know very small organizations that are doing uh, something, and just the number of people that are getting engaged at that level at the real grassroots. Uh, it's it's below anybody's radar screen, so that's why the work Hawken did on it was so important to kind of call it to our attention. That actually, there's a lot going on out there. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, I think we're winding down. One one last thing, uh, just to share with you. Uh, Cindy has uh, offered the use of her uh, backyard to do an outdoor sitting at some point in time. Uh, so I, I wanted to, to just share that with people and think about it over the course of the next week. And uh, you know, feel free to email me if you have uh, Either you, you'd love to do it or you have reservations about doing it just at this particular point in time. And uh, we'll revisit it and figure out. Uh, I think it's, it's definitely something uh, we're going to want to do. It's, it's more of the timing than anything. Uh, Dean, so where is that? Where would that be located? That would be in Lindhurst. Okay. So she had, she had first broached it with me a few weeks back, and it was still, to my mind, way too premature. And I, I felt, I, I would have felt weird, uh, even though it's her neighborhood, not mine, but, you know, a bunch of cars parking and going, going into her backyard. Uh, figure, you, know, you don't need that with your neighbors. <laughs> <They're gonna laughs> uh, whereas now, you know, things are lightening up and, and uh, maybe that's not such such a concern, but but still, uh, so just mull it over, and and we'll we'll revisit it. And like I said, feel free to email me too if if you have any uh, sense positive, negative, and uh, yeah. we'll figure out dates that we might do it, or or maybe figure it's premature even to pick a date. So...
all right, I think that's it though.